Welcome to Blackstone Irregulars. Uh, this is Holly Blackstone, and you're listening to Podcast 4, We All Have Stories in Us, Part 3. So thanks for your patience as I learn the ropes uh, around podcasting. I really appreciate your forbearance, uh, and uh, thank you for tuning back in. So Mr. Mann has been starting to listen to my podcast, and he thinks that I should edit less, even if it means keeping more ums in, keeping more uh, noises in <laughs> when I'm distracted or the cats jump on the table or something else. So he thinks that it sounds better if it's more continuous and there's not so many audible breaks. So let me know what you think. Uh, don't forget my podcast email is podcast at hollyblackstone.com. So I appreciate your feedback. i thought I ch I'm changing stuff around a little bit from what I promised last time in this podcast. And I wanted to walk you through one of my novels, how I got from the original concept to fleshing it out and completing the story. But first, I wanted to remind you that what you write is not final. The, what you the first draft that you get out right now doesn't have to be the final draft. Don't feel like it has to be perfect, even with regard to plot and filling in details or anything like that. You can tear things out easily and rewrite it if you don't like it. Remember, it's just ones and zeros. It's just words on a page. This is so much easier to do than when I was growing up and I was still writing stuff on a typewriter so <laughs> and using whiteout and correction tape and everything like that. And I, I was just at the tail end of that. So you can just easily cut stuff out and put it aside and come put it back in if you decide after all that that's what you really want. And I've done that a few times. Um, the most recently is with the final battle scene in the Void Chronicles, which I am currently rewriting. I got through, I finished the book, I started editing, and I, um, I, I went through book one and read it, book two, book three, make sure the continent, continuity felt right, make sure I didn't miss anything, noted some stuff I wanted to verify that I hadn't made, I hadn't been redundant in book four brought up again, because book four is a, 180,000 words. And so it's easy for things to get lost there. And so I wanted to make sure that there, that, that it was seamless. And then as I started editing book four, I thought, you know, that battle scene, I am just not happy with. And it is the culmination of at this point, almost 300,000. Well, no, more than that, 400,000 words and this epic story. And so I want to make sure I, I got it right. So I've torn stuff out. I tore stuff out a little bit in the Leada Bachelor series. And you may not even notice it. Uh, it. You probably don't notice it because you don't know what the rest of it was. So don't worry about tearing stuff out if you want to, if you need to, if you don't feel it's right. You can always put it back in. You can always work around it. So I wanted to walk you through my novel and laugh at digital butterflies, which is a cyberpunk story with erotic elements in it. Um, if you haven't read it, uh, it is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all these other places. Uh, it's, I wrote it a few years ago. It's going to be the next novel that I work on after I finish editing the Void Chronicles and get it published. So I mentioned in one of my previous podcasts, how I came up with the idea that Mr. Mann and I were going to lunch and we started talking about how sex had pushed the evolution of technology forward uh, with regard to the internet and how I came up with this idea of like, I, I like VR, I wanted VR and I was like, well, what, 
how is how is sex going to affect the development of virtual reality? And so there you go, kernel of a story. Now it has to be fleshed out. I started with the main character, so I wanted it to be a woman. I write mainly, I mean, I don't, I can't foresee writing a male protagonist, but I could, I could. Um, but I decided that I was going to have a female protagonist here and that she was going to be a little unconventional. And I like the name Abigail. And so that was pretty easy to settle on. Um, it's good because it's also short. It's a, a very, it's, I wouldn't say it's an old name, but it kind of is, but it's a very traditional name in a sense. I like that it could be Abby or Abigail more formal. I, I like having names that you can shorten in books. Uh, people can come up with nicknames as a result of that to make, make the main character seem more familiar. So then who is going to be her hero? So I, uh, liked and was aware of a physicist named Freeman Dyson who died earlier this year. Uh, and I, I thought, well, I like the name Dyson. I, Dyson's pretty cool. And Mr. Man used to work with a guy whose last name was Pierce, although spelled differently. And I thought, well, Dyson, Dyson, what name should I have with that? And I'm like, should be something fairly easy. And Pierce popped into my mind. And so there you go, Dyson Pierce. And as I started writing the story, it was one of those serendipitous things where he was having an exchange with Abigail and trying to impart on her that he had some perspective. That he wasn't always just treated as these, this son of a wealthy family who had created this space dynasty. And he said that his, uh, when he went to school, his identity was somewhat uh, hidden by using his first name, which is John. So there's a little background there to give a little flavor that you think that he has everything. I mean, he's the world's first trillionaire. Uh, and then you find out that he's he's had some struggles. He's had to cope with taking this identity, this family identity, this family mantle uh, with him throughout his whole life. Now, until recently, I I thought the first trillionaire that we were going to see was going to be a space trillionaire. Uh, there's just so much money in the universe, in the I mean, in the in in our galaxy, in our solar system, with regard to raw materials that I figured the first trillionaire that we ever saw on this planet was going to be a space tycoon. That may still be the case, although Jeff Bezos apparently is making a good run for it right now. But so to me, that seemed like, okay, so I have the hero, the heroine and the hero. And that seems like a pretty good situation going on there. So then what's the next thing? Okay, I I had decided that technology and, and uh, personalized fantasies, personalized virtual reality simulations were things that were going to become, going to come in vogue in the future. And if you think about it, that's not a big leap. People have vanity projects. They sometimes pay to get their books published or go to great lengths to make movies, even independent movies, uh, Blair Witch Project, low budget stuff. Uh, so it's not... It's not beyond the pale to consider that someone who has an inordinate amount of money would want something like a personal simulation. Um, but these things generally start out um, as something that the wealthy can afford. And then it becomes adopted by the masses. And the scale opens up here, right? So, for example... You can look at this with regard to cars. Cars were things that only the wealthy could afford for a long time. And now 
The wealthy afford extraordinary cars like Ferraris, Lamborghinis, Porsches, uh, $200,000, $500,000 cars, McLarens, all all sorts of things like that. But most Americans, even if they're considered poor or poorer, have a car, or a lot of them do. And so I like this idea that there was going to be this scale here that that you're going to have the wealthy and the successful at one end who are going to want custom simulations. But what's the lower end? You know, what's the Atari cartridge style <laughs> that you're going to have for virtual reality for the masses? And so I thought about that and I thought about the evolution, as you can guess from my reference to Atari, uh, to uh, video game consoles, you know, things that you could just access that were made a moss and were accessible to people uh, regardless of their station. If, you know, cell phones are ubiquitous now, uh, televisions, uh, things we don't even think about, satellites, streaming services, there's so much, the internet, people see these almost as just utilities as vital as gas or electricity. Sorry about that. I had to take a sip of water there. So, so I, I was thinking about that with regard to Abigail. So how did she get to be in this enviable position of making high-end simulations for some of the world's wealthiest men and women? Well, she would have to probably start at the bottom. I liked that idea. I like the idea of someone working their way up from the bottom. And so she started out doing your run-of-the-mill simulations that you could rent or go to an emporium, is what I call them, which is basically like a boutique where you could go and have a, a, uh, a group virtual reality experience. And it's funny because I wrote this book years ago and yet now you're seeing them pop up a little bit. There's one here not too far away in Redmond called Portal. Although who knows with the pandemic how that's going to work out. But anyway, so, so you had these kind of run of the mill simulations that people could do, but she had this idea uh, putting Easter eggs in them. Now, Easter eggs are in movies. Easter eggs are sometimes in books, these little obtuse references. Uh, Easter eggs are definitely in software. Mr. Man is a software developer himself, and he's worked on some very important projects that if I mention their name, you would know what they are. Everybody knows what they are. But And they had little things in there that they put in that were Easter eggs. So if you looked at the code, you'd you'd kind of laugh about it. And so one thing he told me about is there was a table in this piece of software called the Burger Master table because there's a local chain called the Bur- called Burger Master. And the developers that he worked with would often go once a week or whatever to Burger Master and they loved it. It's a great place. Uh, we go there even even today, Mr. Man and I do. Um, it's a, it's actually a car hop, which is really charming. So, uh, there's a burger master table in this piece of software that uh, someone put in. So I, I knew that history and I liked the idea of moving it forward and movies have these often. And you can probably think of your favorite movies, uh, Blade Runner, Atari, Coca-Cola, various, uh, little drops in there. So I, I merge, I, I moved that to Abigail. So Abigail is this low-end simulator who's just churning out stuff that the masses consume on their weekends. But she decides to put something a little special in there, these Easter eggs, and she becomes famous for them. She, Her name is Havoc. She's a coder referred to as Havoc. And people start this following kind of, um, it's it sort of anticipated Instagram stars, I guess, and some of these personalities. And so in the future, people are known for their uh for, for being coders, for being these excellent coders. And so 
Havoc became became famous for her little Easter eggs and the quality and depth of her simulations that she posted. So she started to work her way up there and she did some very technical simulations and uh, historical reenactments and everything and then became, uh, pr- was promoted to this position where she started making these really high-end custom simulations for wealthy clients, uh, businesses, men and women. And so this is how this evolution of this character is. I think it's a great backstory. I loved it when I came up with it. I thought it was fun. It showed her tenacity. It told you something about her character. She had a partial formal, edu- formal education, um, but uh, she didn't finish college. And she was, uh, she, she, but she, she took the skills that she did have and she worked very hard and she made something of herself. So then, so now Havoc, Abby Pritchard, is well-paid um, considering the, the uh, standard of, of living that people have. And she has an apartment in a really nice building. And she even has a flyer, which is a flying car. And she seems to be living a, a pretty good life. And she turns, she still, still does periodic uh, run of the mill simulations uh, as a thank you to all her friends who helped propel her. So, so you get the feeling that she is actually kind of a nice person and she's a hard worker. She's appreciative. So, she one day, I'm probably giving too much of the story away if you haven't read it, but she gets a simulation request that she handles and she has fun with the person that she is doing the simulation for. She, she really clicks with them. So I liked that setup. I thought that was, that was great. It was dynamic. It was interesting. You could introduce kind of the pivotal point fairly early on. In movies, there's this concept. I think it's within 10 minutes or 15 minutes. You have to, something has to happen in the movie. And so I felt that this was a good cadence for the beginning of the book. Here you are. So then Dyson, let's talk about Dyson. As I mentioned, Dyson was, uh, he, he rose to prominence in stratosphere futuristics, uh, which was, uh, his, his father was one of the people who started the company and, uh, he took it further and as a, is a trillionaire as a, as a result of it. But, uh, I, I liked the name stratosphere futuristics. I thought it had this retro forward looking sound to it. So I like names like general atomics and things like that. And so I wanted to model it after that. So here you are stratosphere futuristics. So, uh, I, so Dyson understandably is going to probably be head of this, uh, very, cutting edge company that is trying to make space stations in space. He's going to be a very driven person. He's going to be quite intense, I would imagine. So, so he, I, I, so, so here are these two worlds, these two lives that are going to collide. So now the story is really getting fleshed, fleshed out. I mean, you have, you have these two people, you have these two personalities, they've, they've developed separately. And now you're going to have this moment where they crash into each other. And that's a really interesting point from a writing, writing perspective, because that's where, that's where these things combine and you start weaving the story forward with these two people, people into it. So, uh, I wanted there to be this sense that both of them were lonely, but in different ways from different sides. Dyson's, uh, pedigree, if you will, made him a lonely person. And Abigail has this personal tragedy in her background, uh, kind of, and kind of odd past the stardom and this anonymity that is required because, uh, jocks as they're called programming jocks, um, 
are are sometimes harassed, doxed, and uh, it's and and so she she her identity to some degree is is protected, uh, and so they both are lonely, but for different reasons. Um, Dyson has a loneliness of wondering how people are going to treat him or why they treat him differently. Abigail has this loneliness of the sense of desire for security and um, being able to do what she do what she wants and have the anonymity to to live kind of a free life. What came out of her life came out of a tragedy too, but she's made something really big out of it. She's she's her own woman. She's made her own future, and that's a really powerful message, I think. But then her life gets turned upside down when she meets Dyson, uh, and. At this point, when I'm when I'm at a story, I need to start keeping things straight because I have names now. I have supporting characters. I have company names. I have uh, nicknames like jocks. Uh, I have backgrounds that I want to keep straight, and you don't want to lose that. So, at this point in story development, at, at the very latest, I'm I have a OneNote notebook or an Excel spreadsheet or a Word document or note cards or whatever it is you've decided to use to track your story. You start writing this stuff down. You start cataloging all of this because, as I mentioned earlier with the Void Chronicles, keeping things straight after four books, 400,000 words more probably. And, uh, uh, you, and, and there's so much that actually happens in the last book. I wish I could tell you because I think it's an amazing book and, and it's just so rich, but keeping all of that straight and not contradicting yourself and, and keeping everything on point and tied together is, it can be very, very challenging. So anyway, we're talking about my process here, um, but I do really recommend keeping things straight by starting to jot them down. I have a quite a good memory, but I still jot things down because there's just so many moving parts at this point. So I start writing before I know everything. I start writing before I know the exact circumstances of the simulation Abby's writing, before I have everything fleshed out, before I have everybody in Dyson's company fleshed out, before I have uh, everything figured out that's going to be in book two. So I, about midway through book one, I'm like, yeah, so this is where I think book two is is going to work. This is what I want book two to be like. So you don't need to have that all figured out. You don't need to have it all planned out. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, you're, you, it's, it's hard. It's difficult. It's very, very difficult to re- relate how things change when you get elbows deep. There's a, there's a great quote. I, I, I can't remember who, who said it, but it's no battle plan survives the first encounter with the enemy. And that's kind of the way writing is. So once you start writing things down and you get a feeling for your characters and you, you start to see what they want to do and how they interact with each other. And that really will, I think, move the plot along uh, very well. But you can't always anticipate that because these right now, these 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 things, these people, these constructs are only in your mind. So when you put them together, it's like a new recipe. So here you are, elbows deep, you felt the characters out. Uh, and then you start writing more and more and more. And I, I'm just asking myself questions, just like I asked myself these questions. How did Abby get to this position that she was in? How did she get to be so successful? How did she get to be the person who is doing these high-end simulations that are bringing an enormous amount of 
an enormous amount of money for the company she she works for and by asking those questions i come up with this backstory and you can try it out like clothes you say i like this i don't like this and you toss it away and remember as i said early on you can edit stuff out um early on years ago before i started writing my books i tried to write a fantasy book i mentioned and I would just keep going and rereading what I had written the last time. And I wasn't making it very far. I would reread it up to that point and I would write a little bit and I would agonize and agonize and agonize. And this time <laughs> with all these books, I haven't done that. I've just pushed it forward. And there have been times where bits seem boring, where I'm having to tie stuff together, where it's not very exciting. It's sort of tedious or I'm dreading something or I have to get some things out of the way. But those are kind of necessary parts and I just work through them and then I move on to the next bit because I can go back when I reread that and I say, you know, I can add a little flavor here. I can tone this down. I can make this more robust and you can, you can change it. So anyway, one of the other components in my and laughing digital butterflies is that I wanted to take a lot of stuff that, that we have here and move it forward. And again, it became those asking those questions, right? Terrorism has been around for a long time, plotting uh, against your enemies and creating acts of destruction that uh, strike terror or fear into, into their hearts. And so moving forward, I you see people sometimes, well, not so much right now, but I, I think that this is going to accelerate. People are saying, why are we going to leave this planet? It's just ridiculous. Why? I saw somebody on Twitter about six months ago, seven months ago, saying that they were writing an entire book that was supposed to show the futility of spaceflight. Now, if you've read my bio online, you know that I feel very, very strongly about space travel. I feel like as a species, we have to do it or we're going to die, that it's the next logical step. We've always been explorers. We've always been curious about what else is out there. We have a solar system full of resources. And it is just sad to think that everything we are Everything our species has ever been is just confined to this one planet and a few satellites or, 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 or uh, space vehicles that are just out there. And if we are hit by a gamma ray burst or an asteroid or something, then it's all gone. Mozart, Shakespeare, everything is all gone. All our technological achievements. And so I think we owe it to ourselves, to our past, to our future, to our children, to our history, um, and especially since we don't have confirmation of whether or not there are any other intelligent species out there, uh, but I think there probably are, and to move forward out into space. But I do see people once in a while saying, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? We're just going to destroy another planet. We're going to do this. We're horrible. We need to have everything fixed here before we can even think of reaching uh, out there. And I don't, I don't feel that way. And it, maybe at some point I'll dive into that more. But knowing that there is going to be a negative or a reactive force on what Dyson is doing, which is developing space, building space stations, building mining facilities. It made sense to create a terrorist group around that. And so I put that into the book again, because I was asking questions. So clearly there is going to be a sexual dynamic here between Dyson and Abigail as well. So I started asking that question, what do I want that dynamic to look like? And eventually I came up with the idea that I wanted the sexual dynamic 
to mirror their interpersonal dynamic. So Dyson comes into it as being sort of a bit more mature in the sense that he has lived under a lot of scrutiny in the public eye. He has a lot riding on what he does with regard to developing space, being the, being the leader of an enormous company, making, having these massive mega projects in space. And he has seen the good and the bad. Uh, his life has been threatened. And he, he's grown a little cynical about who to trust. And Abigail has, is, is, has been up to this point in the top of her game, but there's a much bigger pond there. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a small subset of the bigger pond of the world. And so I wanted their sexual dynamic on some level to mirror that. So she's, uh, inexperienced in the kind of rarefied world that Dyson, uh, has inhabited for the majority of his life. And so, uh, but Dyson and Dyson wield this incredible power. And so I wanted the sexual dynamic to sort of mirror that as well between the two of them. So then, um, finished book one and, uh, book two, like I said, which will, I'm going to start on, uh, after I finish Void Chronicles is going to expand on some of these themes, um, big events at Strato, Abigail starts to mature more. Um, there, there were some growing pains when she moved over to Strato, uh, where she was trying to manage teams and, and developing things, uh, and working on a much bigger project. I mean, working on some custom simulations and also then working on what she ends up working on at Strato, which is simulations for these space stations. Very much bigger, much bigger, uh, game there. So. Anyway, so that is how I have developed that whole story. And I'm just looking at my time on Audacity and I realize that I have talked far more about this than I thought I would. Anyway, so I'll try to keep this next little bit short. So you can see, so see from what I've related so far that I'm pretty much a pantser. So there's this debate on Twitter and the writing community. Are you a pantser or a plotter? And I've touched on this in, in the, in the previous podcast, but so I'm, for the most part, I'm a pantser. I get a bit down and then I'm like, let me just start writing it on paper, see how I feel, see where I go, see what I like, see what I throw at my characters. And uh, I have a few things here and there and everything else is just kind of meh. I'm just going to write it and see where my fingers and my characters take me. So there you go. There's my little, well, not so little summary about how I plot. So does my process seem familiar to you? Something that you could uh, replicate? Uh, do you like the idea of doing things that way and seeing how they develop? Or do you feel that you're much more comfortable if you start writing a lot of detail down and you don't want to leave so much to chance? But anyway, you've get, got, you've got an inside look on how I develop things. A few little more, a few, a few more, uh, little hints here. Mull things over. How do you do this? How do you build this world? What can I, what can you add to it? Uh, what are, is familiar to you now? And if you're writing something futuristic, how can you change and advance that technology? 
Or is there some regression here? So in a book, I, for one thing, I love sodium vapor lights. I'm just going to say that now, which is an odd thing to like probably for a lot of people. But I love sodium vapor lights. For one thing, yellow and amber are much better colors for contrast, especially in inclement weather. But also I like the warm color of it. So I put in the book sodium lights. Uh, it's something that you can see from these towering, towering skyscrapers. You can look down, you can see the sodium vapor lights. And then, of course, LEDs became really, has become really, really popular. And most LEDs, regrettably, that are used in cities now are white, which I don't get because it's a safety thing too. And they look ugly and they're much brighter. But anyway, I was thinking about this and I'm like, well, how does that fit in my world? Why would vapor, sodium vapor, be in the 21st century? Why would people have sodium vapor lights? Or at least something that looked like sodium vapor lights. And then I came up with an idea as to why that would be, <laughs> because that bothers me. That bothers me that I might have missed something there. So the reason why you might have sodium vapor lights in the future is because with flying cars, the white LEDs on the front of the headlights are going to be confused with the white LEDs of the road. So they reverted back to a facsimile of sodium vapor lights to distinguish cars from streetlight illumination. And there you have the mental gymnastics sometimes you go through to try to figure stuff out. So I wanted to leave you with a final thought from Ray Bradbury. I think this is a great quote. If you ever want to write, if you want to create, you must be the most sublime fool that God ever turned out and sent rambling. You must write every single day of your life. You must read dreadful, dumb books and glorious books and let them wrestle in beautiful fights inside your head, vulgar one moment, brilliant the next. You must lurk in libraries and climb the stacks like ladders to sniff books like perfumes and wear books like hats upon your crazy heads. I wish you a wrestling ma match with your creative muse that will last a lifetime. I wish craziness and foolishness and madness upon you. May you live with hysteria and out of it make fine stories, science fiction or otherwise, which finally means may you be in love every day for the next 20,000 days and out of that love, remake a world. That's a beautiful quote, isn't it? So thank you for tuning in and listening to me again. Uh, next podcast, I probably will develop some of the things I didn't this time, like secondary characters, dialogue. Don't forget to email me with questions, pointers, suggestions. I really would love to see some email from y'all. My po podcast email is podcast at hollyblackstone.com. And thank you for joining me. I'll talk to you again soon.